This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. This episode, we're digging into how to use cover crops in our home gardens. I kept saying I needed to do a full episode on this, and so we're doing it today. This is not reserved for just big farms with thousands of acres of land. Using a cover crop in the home garden is beneficial in all kinds of ways and can be tailored to what you need. Improving soil structure, preventing erosion, as a living mulch to add nutrients back into your soil, or all of the above. This is effective for both in-ground beds and raised planters. What you plant and when you plant it and then what you do with it when it's done all depends on what you want to get out of it. So we'll cover all the options and the techniques for planting and which crops work best for our individual garden needs. And the question of the week is a two-parter. It's about pruning nectarine trees and when to apply copper sprays or dormant oils. And how do you tell if a tree is dormant versus maybe just dying or even dead? Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So as I record this, I've been sitting at my desk all day working on farm admin and paperwork, enjoying the sound of lovely, lovely rain. We desperately needed this. Um, September was the second driest on record for our county for the past 120 years or so. We are in a severe drought condition, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. So we've got soil cracks that are really big and really deep. The corn and the soybeans, uh, a lot of the time, are being cut for silage now because they didn't even get to a full crop. The late summer vegetables, they've all been smaller. The yields have been decreased. The trees are stressed. I lost a plum tree. The surface water levels are all really, really low. I wish I had taken a picture yesterday before we got this rain because I literally walked from one side of one of my ponds to the other one right down the middle. It was It's that dry. It's that low. We actually had to go out and run fence in what is normally the middle of the pond because it's so dry and it's down so low that our horses could literally, if they had figured it out, walk through the pond and get out off of our property. It's it's insane. So it's been a steady light rain all day. I'm hoping for more to continue. We've got probably about an inch and a half so far, which is not nearly enough, and there's nothing in the forecast for the next 10 days. So... Either way, I think we're going to have to rely on snowfall this winter to make up the difference for the coming spring. I hope the conditions where you are are more favorable for wherever you're gardening, and uh, and hopefully we're looking good going into, um, into the winter for you. 
the question of the week was sent in by Cody, and by the spelling, I'm going to guess that this is the same Cody that left that lovely um, review a few weeks ago, so that's fantastic. Cody said, I'm wondering about when I should be pruning my nectarine tree to keep a manageable size, and mainly, when is the time to apply copper fungicide for peach leaf curl? I've had it confirmed and was told to treat while the tree is dormant, but how do I tell when it's dormant? Just no leaves? Is the beginning of dormancy better or the end? So I did reply to Cody directly, but I'm also going to answer it here. And I'm glad, actually, that I replied uh, to them directly because I got a follow-up email today um, thanking me for, for the response and that, you know, they saw that I've done a couple of episodes on fruit trees and I will go ahead and link to those in the show notes. But, um, Cody is currently working on listening from the episodes starting at episode one and is in the fifties now. So it may be a while until they get to hear this comment in this episode. So, uh, I'm glad that I always respond to these emails or to these questions directly. So if you have a question and you want to send it in, don't worry. I will always answer them whether or not I answer them on the podcast. Um, so getting back to the question at hand, Nectarines are a little different with regards on the timing of their pruning. Um, they're different from peaches and some of the other ones. They actually prefer to be pruned a little bit later than the others, usually at the very end of winter or in the really early spring, basically just before they break dormancy. Now, you'll know that your tree is dormant um, when it starts dropping its leaves. You'll see bud points at the tips of the twigs, but they won't be actively growing. And I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. Now, peach leaf curl is best controlled in the spring just prior to bud break. This is the bud break is the time when the flower buds begin to green up and open. You can also reapply um, these dormant oils if you see other copper sprays, if you see symptoms during the early spring, that's at the end of the dormancy. So peach leaf curl, copper spray, that's all sprayed at the end of dormancy. Essentially for nectarines, you want to prune right at the end of winter and then apply the copper spray right soon afterwards and you should be good. Now, how can you tell a tree has gone dormant versus a tree that's dead or dying? Like I said, I lost a plum tree and winter is going to be the easiest time to get rid of that tree. But how do I know it's truly dead and it didn't just go dormant? The first thing, like I said, the leaves um, dying and dropping off, that's normally a sign of it going dormant. But if the leaves are dying and dropping earlier than all of your other trees in the fall, that's exactly what happened with my plum tree. That tree was completely bare a full month before any of the others and well before we'd had our first freeze. So that was sort of my first sign. The next thing that you want to look for is what I call a funky trunk. <laughs> um, a, a good, healthy living tree has a nice, living, healthy bark. A tree that's dead or dying may be missing big old chunks out of its bark. Uh, the trunk may have large insect holes or fungus growing on it. There might be cracks in the trunk. If your tree has a funky trunk, it's got open wounds or soft spots or there's edding, rotting, or decay, it very well may be dying or is already dead. The next thing is a scratch test. 
Grab a limb and scratch a little bark off right down to the tissue inside. If the tree is still alive and healthy, the interior of that branch is going to be nicely moist and it's going to have a healthy green color. If it's brown and it's brittle under that bark, then that's a really bad sign. Try bending the branch at that point. If it snaps really easily, that branch is dead. Try again on another branch on another part of the tree. Repeated attempts at this that yield the same result mean that this tree is dying or is already dead. It is possible for one part of a tree to be dead and another part still be living, especially on much larger trees. So be sure that you walk around and test multiple spots if you're still not sure. The next thing is to check your buds. Um, even in the winter dormant state, your trees should already have next spring's buds at the tips of their branches. So look for these. If there are none, your tree may have died before getting a chance to form any. And if they are there, but they look dark or dry or shriveled up, that may indicate that you've got a dead branch. Again, check the other branches to see if you've got the same problem. If so, then you've got a dead or dying tree. And then finally, you can always just wait until spring to see if there are signs of life. If you just don't trust yourself to make the determination in the winter, then wait and see if you get any bud break in the spring. If there are no leaves or blooms opening in the spring, then the plant is obviously dead. If only parts of the tree come back, the tree is definitely still in trouble, but you may bring someone out to look at it and see if it can be salvaged. If the roots are still alive, but the tree itself has taken some damage, sometimes a really experienced professional may be able to give it a specific type of pruning to bring it back. If it's a disease or a pest that took it out, then they can give you answers for that too. And if your tree is dead, Try to get it removed as quickly as possible. Dead trees are a really good harbor for pests that can infest your other healthy trees later on down the road. So if it's dead, get it out of there, just like what I'll be doing to my poor little plum tree. All right, I've mentioned them over and over in numerous episodes, but never done a full rundown on them up until now. So let's do it. Let's talk cover crops. Cover crops are any plant that is grown in the garden to improve the soil's physical structure or its fertility or both, right? Cover crops are also often referred to as green manure. They can be grains, grasses, brassicas, or legumes. Usually they're grown during fall and winter and then they're turned under in the spring or left on the soil surface to act as a mulch. During their growth, Cover crops can help reduce soil compaction, they can capture excess nutrients, and they prevent erosion. The roots of some of these crops can also help loosen heavy textured soils, and that allows for better air and water penetration. Legumes, as a cover crop, add nitrogen back into the soil. Cover crops can also reduce weed problems, and they can provide a habitat for beneficial insects. And as these cover crops grow, they become like living reservoirs for excess nutrients and micronutrients. And then when they're worked back into the soil, not only are they breaking down and making those nutrients available to your future garden crops, but they're also feeding the microbiota in the soil, the bacteria, the fungi, the worms, and all the other life forms that are responsible for really good fertile soil, and they're increasing the soil organic matter. Some can be planted to break up really difficult soils and then left to biodegrade, which means they're serving multiple purposes. Every type of cover crop can serve one or more purposes and can be used in a multitude of ways to fit your particular garden's needs. 
So if you're familiar with cover crops at all, it may be that you've seen them used in large-scale farming systems, right? In most systems, the farmer is planting a cover crop in a field during the time when their cash crop, the crop that's actually making them money, is not growing. So this keeps the soil in place during the winter. It may fix nitrogen back into the soil depending on the crop, and it might add biomass back in or it may act as a mulch. And then when it comes time to plant the cash crop, the cover crop is terminated. This can be done either by using pesticides, um, rolling and crimping the crop down, mowing it and then tilling it under to incorporate it into the soil, relying on the crop to winter kill or frost kill, or um, by using livestock to heavy graze the crop down so that it's destroyed and then it can be planted into. The farmer has lots of options, and often the method is decided based on the availability of either proper equipment or livestock to do the job, and what the goals are for the farmer and their cash crop. In home gardening, we have plenty of options too, and those options also are based on what we're trying to achieve, and less so about the availability of equipment and more so about our gardening style and how much work we want to put into terminating the cover crop. So first thing I'll cover is each of the goals that we might want to achieve using cover crops and how that's accomplished. And then I'll talk about which crops are good for which goals and what time of year those crops are used. This will be a kind of high level overview. Otherwise, this episode would be like three hours long and it would sound like a college lecture. So, um, But by the end of this, you should have a good understanding of what your options are. So then maybe you can go forth and do a little more research on the one or two that strike your fancy and then give them a go. Okay, so let's talk the seven different goals that we might have for cover cropping. Number one, prevent soil erosion and provide weed control. So if our soil is left bare while we're not actively using it, one of two things is gonna happen. Either the weather conditions are gonna carry away some of that precious topsoil, or weeds are gonna take hold and just take off as soon as the soil conditions are right. In some cases, you could be facing both of these. Cover crops can be planted before a garden bed gets planted and used as a living mulch to provide weed control or can be planted after a crop comes out to keep the soil in place and prevent weeds from moving in. Number two is nitrogen fixation. Anytime we grow something, especially a crop that relies heavily on pulling nitrogen from the soil, we may find our soil depleted after that crop is done. We can use legumes as cover crops to help replace that nitrogen. Legumes can be planted before a heavy crop is set to go in, planted after a heavy feeder comes out, or both. You can either leave a low-growing legume in place under taller-growing crops to continue to fix nitrogen and act as a mulch, or terminate that crop prior to planting and then plant again after the crop comes out. In the case of termination, you want to leave the roots in place. There's nodules on those roots that store that nitrogen, and those will continue to feed the soil long after the top part of that cover crop has been removed. Number three is green manure. Even though cover crops are sometimes referred to as green manure as a general term, this is actually a purpose of specific cover crops. The idea is to plant the cover crop terminate it, and then allow both the root mass and the top growth to break down into the soil, feeding it nutrients the same way a composted livestock manure would, hence the term green manure. 
With very few exceptions, almost all cover crops can be used in this manner. Grow the crop, chop it down, leave the roots to break down, and either turn the top growth under or leave it whole on top to act as a mulch and then plant your crop into it. It'll break down slowly over time and still add nutrients to the soil. Number four is creating biomass. Sometimes the whole goal is just to increase the soil organic matter. You'd think that those green manure crops that we just talked about would also create biomass. And while that's true to some extent, there are some crops that just aren't as bulky as others and don't add as much to the soil. So if you're looking to just add mass, you're going to choose specific crops. The procedure on this is the same as green manure. Grow it, chop it down, turn it under. If your goal is specifically biomass, turning it under in some way is going to accomplish this faster. But if you're more of a no-till or no-dig gardener and you don't want to turn the soil at all, then you should choose the cover crops that have the biggest root mass. Mustard, for example, is one of those. It has a large amount of root mass, so that can be left in the soil. And then if you just leave the crop on top of the soil, it will eventually break down too. Number five, breaking up the soil and compaction control. If you have heavy clay soil that needs to be broken up or you have soil that is prone to being compacted, then there are cover crops specific to this goal. These are plants that either have very thick and interconnected root systems that break up the soil and prevent compaction or things that have large tap roots that loosen and aerate the soil. In both of these instances, you'll want to plant these crops to give them sufficient time to grow and produce those roots. If it's something that'll be mowed and removed, you'll want to leave the, the roots in place. In some cases, the, the crop will winter kill and it'll just be absorbed into the soil during the winter and there isn't anything for the gardener to do but just loosen the soil up and start planting in the spring. Number six is attracting beneficial insects. There's a lot to be said for any plant that will attract beneficials to our gardens and cover crops are no exception. This is especially true if you have a bed in the garden that won't be used for like an entire season because you need to break a disease cycle or you need to build up nutrients or improve the texture. Planting a cover crop that will flower and draw in those insects can help your garden in multiple ways. Choose the crop based on the length of time it will be in place, but also for how easily it self-seeds. You do not want to use a crop like buckwheat as a cover crop to attract beneficials if you need something that needs to stay in place long term. If, if buckwheat goes to seed, it can quickly become a nuisance weed in your garden. But if you use it in a bed that has just a short break between crops in the summer, it will bloom very quickly. It will attract tons of pollinators in that very short time, but then you'll terminate it before it becomes a problem. If you have a space that will be cover cropped all season long, choose something like clover that will bloom but then doesn't become a nuisance after it's terminated. And then number seven is forage. So if you're a homesteader and you have livestock or if you have backyard chickens or even pet rabbits that you're feeding, you can grow cover crops that also act as food for your animals. So whether you put it in place and then allow the animals to graze it down, or if you chop it down and you bring it to them, you can use cover crops to reduce your feed bill while also benefiting your garden at the same time. 
And again, you can absolutely combine any and sometimes all of these goals based on the crop that you choose. But how do you choose? This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time or seen my posts on Instagram, you know my husband and I are both former military and that we have a serious coffee habit. We also like to support other veteran-owned businesses, so Black Rifle Coffee is our coffee of choice. Not only do they have great coffee and merch, but they give back to military and first responders with every purchase. If you'd like to support this podcast and another veteran-owned business while also supporting your own coffee habit, head to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash coffee to save 20% when you join the Black Rifle Coffee Club. Give them a try with no commitment you can cancel at any time. That's JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash coffee for 20% off your coffee club subscription. Let's talk about some of the most popular cover crops that we can use in the garden, whether or not they'll winter kill in colder climates and some other important details, and then we'll put them into categories based on our seven cover cropping goals to help you decide what you want to use. So the first one is summer alfalfa. This is planted early in the spring to the late summer. It's got a very fast growth rate. It is not frost tolerant. It has a high forage and biomass capacities, right? So it's got really long tap roots that will break up compacted soil and it will bring up subsurface minerals, which totally adds to the soil fertility. It's very good for fixing nitrogen and it's a really great forage crop for bees. Um, the next one is that buckwheat I talked about. This can be planted in the spring to the summer. It is very fast growing. It is not frost tolerant at all. Um, it grows for about a month before you terminate it. Again, you want to do that before it goes and sets seed. It's really good for suppressing weeds in between crops in the summertime, and it attracts boatloads of pollinators when it's blooming. Next is clover. There are different types of, cl of clover. Some are more low growing, some are a little bit taller. Um, crimson clover is hardy only through zone seven, but the others, the red, um, the New Zealand white, those are all hardy to zone four. And so many of them will survive the winter in colder climates and act as a living mulch. The growth rates on these range from slow to fast, depending on the type. And they do check most of the boxes on the goals, almost all of them for cover cropping. Um, crimson and red clovers can be planted pretty much any time. Sweet clover and white clover are generally planted in the spring to the summer. Next up is mustard. It is fast growing. It's planted spring through fall. It's really good for weed suppression. It's really good for biomass. Remember that root system I talked about? And it often acts as a pest control to boot, specifically nematodes. It does best in cool conditions, but it will winter kill in zones seven and colder. So it should be planted in the spring or as early in the fall as possible to really reap the benefits. 
Now the next one is oats. So this is not only an edible crop for us, but it's also a great cover crop. I used to plant oats in between my strawberry plants, and since they winter kill, I would just come along and cut the stalks down and lay them down over the strawberries as their winter mulch. I'm actually not sure why I stopped doing that. Maybe I should go back to doing that. Um, it's got a medium growth rate. The stubble that's left after you cut it down continues to hold that soil in place over the winter. And, I mean, bonus points if you get a harvestable crop out of it, which I did do that a few times. Another reason I should go back to doing that. Next up is field peas. It's a fast-growing legume, so this is perfect for fixing nitrogen into the soil. If you plant it thickly enough, they're very effective at crowding out those weeds in the early spring. You can plant field peas spring or fall, and they do winter kill in zones 7 and colder, so there's not a lot of work to do after the winter to get the beds prepped in the spring. Next up is daikon radish or forage radish or oilseed radish. Yes, daikon radish is an edible crop for us, but it is also a fantastic cover crop. It grows pretty quickly, and it gets really big, and so it's great for breaking up compacted soils. It has a huge taproot that drills really deep into the soil, and then if you leave it in place over the winter, it breaks down quickly in the spring, so it aerates the soil while it's also adding those nutrients back in. The only drawback to this is that that decomposition process in the spring can be a little stinky. So um, for a little bit in the spring while it's doing its dirty work, it might smell a little bad. So just be aware of that before you plant it. Next one is winter rye. This is a very hardy cover crop. It is hardy in the winter down to zone three. So if you need something to prevent soil erosion and add organic matter, and you are in a much colder zone, um, this is your winter cover crop. It's got a medium growth rate, and it can be planted just about any time the soil can be worked. After that, there's ryegrass, okay, different from winter rye. This is a fast-growing cover crop. It's a really good nitrogen scavenger. It germinates very quickly in the right temperatures. It establishes really easily, and it is winter-hardy up to zone 6, which is pretty good as far as a winter annual is concerned. To keep it from reseeding itself, though, in areas where it doesn't winter kill, it needs to be killed in the spring before it reaches the seed formation stage so that you don't end up with a nuisance. And then finally, we have hairy vetch. This is a slow-growing legume, so this is another one for fixing nitrogen, and it's really good for erosion control. You can plant this one pretty much any time. It's hardy down to zone 4, so another one that's good for a winter cover crop. It'll spring up and grow more rapidly the following spring, so it's great for early weed suppression. It's a good green manure if it's worked into the soil, but it might be slightly alleliopathic, which means it could prevent small seeded crops from germinating. So if you plan to direct sow into a bed after growing hairy vetch, you're going to want to wait about two to three weeks after incorporating it into the soil before you plant there. Um, if you're transplanting started seedlings, though, that's not an issue. Okay, so those are kind of our, our top 10. So which of these is good for which goal? What is the best cover crop for each of our garden goals? Now keep in mind, you can mix a lot of these together to accomplish more than one goal at a time or to spread out the amount of time that they're in place doing their job. It's pretty common, for example, to mix field peas with oats and vetch to serve multiple purposes. So 
let's look at this. We'll go one through seven through our goals again, and we'll match up the goal to the cover crop that accomplishes that goal. Okay, so number one, preventing soil erosion and providing weed control. Things that are good for this, clover, mustard, oats, peas, radish, rye, ryegrass, and vetch. Those are all excellent at preventing soil erosion and choking out the weeds at the same time. Now, alfalfa and buckwheat also provide good weed control, but they don't quite have enough mass to really provide much in erosion control. Number two, nitrogen fixation. These are your legumes, alfalfa, clover, peas, and vetch. Number three, green manure. Buckwheat, clover, mustard, oats, peas, radish, rye, ryegrass, and vetch all add good amounts of nutrients back into the soil as a green manure. You're seeing a lot of overlap with some of these, right? That means we can accomplish multiple goals with just one or two cover crops. Let's keep going. Number four, creating biomass. Alfalfa, mustard, oats, peas, rye, and ryegrass. Sweet clover is another good one here, but some sources don't recommend the other ones, the red and the white clovers for this. That's at a university level, though, where they're definitely measuring dry matter and getting very dialed in on the number. So I don't think they should be excluded from the home garden, especially if you're using them for another cover crop purpose already. Um, number five, breaking up the soil and compaction control. Alfalfa, clover, and radish. Okay, those forage radishes really are the gold standard in our clay soils here, but alfalfa is a close second for that. Number six, attracting beneficial insects. Alfalfa, buckwheat, clover, mustard, and hairy vetch in its second year when it flowers in the spring. And remember, the key to most of these is to not let them set seed if you don't want them to come back and become a nuisance. If they self-seed, they may end up becoming another weed in your garden. So allow them to flower and then terminate them with the exception of the clover. The clover doesn't have that problem, at least in my experience. And then number seven, forage. This is alfalfa, clover, and mustard. Now, keep in mind though, mustard is a brassica. So if you have animals that are prone to issues from plants in that family, like rabbits sometimes, um, then you may want to avoid that one. Alfalfa is, is really probably the gold standard as far as a forage crop is concerned. Wow, okay, so that's a quick run through of cover crops. This was not comprehensive by any means, and I'm gonna break this information down into probably three separate articles over on the website to put this information and more into some bite-sized chunks for you. So if you're not on my email list yet, head to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com to sign up, and then you'll get these articles in your inbox as they come out, and then you can always go back and reference them on the website when needed. I hope that gave you the inspiration to jump in and get started with cover cropping. I'll leave some links in the show notes to some resources and to some simple cover crop mixes that you can buy in like one pound bags just to kind of get yourself started on a small scale if you just want something that you can toss into the beds now or in the spring and see how they do. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. 
You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. So how to use cover crops, cover crops, Jeez. cover crops can be planted before a garden get, get, a garden get, I'm having all kinds of problems talking tonight, break up the soil and comp- you can plant field pre field prees. Hmm.